What's happening, everybody? This is Bob Wankel, back with Anthony Sanfilippo for a new episode of Crossed Up. And I feel like every time we record these shows, Anthony, we always say we're getting back on track. We're going to be consistently pumping out new shows. Yeah, then I almost died. Yeah, that was our intention. And then things kind of happened. And uh, (laughs) put it bluntly there, you almost died. Uh, Yeah, so it's, it's great to be able to talk to you. I can see you again. We're doing this through Zoom. So you and I are face to face right now. And you look like you're doing pretty well. I, I heard you on WIP uh, over the weekend. I know you also did a hit on 97.5. So it seems like you're getting your energy back and you're kind of back on your feet and look like you're feeling a little bit better here. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to be back. I mean, uh, you know, just in case our listeners didn't hear the story very briefly, um, I was in the hospital last month for 11 days uh, with COVID pneumonia. Um, and when I went into the hospital on January 13th, uh, I went in and I was in critical condition. Um, my oxygen level was below 70%. And norm, normal human being, it's 97 to 99. So that just goes to show you how much uh, I was struggling to breathe. Um, but here we are 33 days later. And while I, was, I still am a little short of breath sometimes, especially when I talk at length, um, I, I feel pretty good. You know, I mean, I mean I'm not 100%. Um, they told me probably not till the end of March. Um, but you know what, it's for being where I was 33 days ago to being where I am today. I, I really can't complain. Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, you know, Russ chimed in and, and kind of contacted all of us and said, you know, Anthony's in, in pretty bad shape. And we're like, well, what do you mean? And he goes, Oh, you know, he has, he has COVID. And we all said, Oh, that's not good. And he goes, he's in the hospital and it's not great. And I said, Oh my God, you know? And yeah. You know, one thing, one thing I saw, and it was, it was really cool is when, when Russ put out the tweet and Kyle put out tweets, uh, just how many people reached out and, you know, sent yeah. their well wishes and stuff like that. So I'm sure that, you know, that was cool for you to see as well. Well, it was great. I got, um, on Twitter alone, I got over a thousand people mm-hmm. reached out Facebook. I had, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 600. Um, and then, you know, I'm, in the hospital watching the Flyers game. Yeah, Jim Jackson, right? Jim Jackson. Yeah. There's a shout out during the game. It was like, you know, this is wild, man. Like, this is completely unexpected. But it was great because, you know, you're isolated in that hospital with COVID. You, you can't have any visitors. So you don't know anyone. And I couldn't talk. I mean, you hear how I am now. I'm not, I'm not even, you know, my normal self. Imagine what I was like a month ago. And so I couldn't even talk to anybody on the phone. So in order to be able to just look at my phone, and to see all those responses from everybody, you guys, my coworkers at my day job, my family, my friends, people I don't even know, um, reaching out, that kind of kept kept me going, you know? What was your, uh, and, and we're going to talk about the Phillies, obviously, this is a Phillies podcast, and we'll get to that, but I, I actually haven't had an opportunity to, to talk to you too much about this. Um, what was your anxiety level like going through that? Were you, were you pretty, you're a pretty sh- even killed guy. You strike yeah. me as a pretty even killed guy. So, I mean, were you able to kind of stay stable from a mental standpoint or were you, you know, pretty anxious and concerned? So my concern was more for my family um, because they were so in the dark. Um, I could only text them a little bit of information uh, here and there because, you know, I was constantly with the drugs I was on, I was sleeping a lot. So, and then my, my sister, who was the correspondent um, for my family, was talking to the nurses, and the nurses only told her so much. So they were freaking the hell out at home. Um, and then, you know, my kids had COVID. Now, granted, they were asymptomatic, 
but they had it. Um, I had other relatives who had it. My dad ends up in the hospital the same time I'm in the hospital. So everybody's going bananas. Um, and so once I started to come around, you know, my last few days in the ICU, and then when they put me in the step-down room, and I'm able to communicate a little bit better, and I realize just what they're going through on the outside. That was where my anxiety was. I was never worried about being by myself in a room. I mean, it sucked, right? I mean, the only people you talk to every day are nurses and doctors, and it's different people every day. So you really don't have a chance to get a good rapport. Um, so that kind of stinks, but I think I'm the kind of person that can kind of handle that, right? I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not going to lose my mind because I'm by myself for 11 days. Um, although there are people that do, and, and I feel bad for them. Having gone through it, like I, I understand why anxiety is a thing and, and mental, you know, any kind of mental stress is a thing. Um, but it was really, what really bothered me is the lack of information that my family had and how, the, how it was affected. The day I was going home, Bob, they thought I was lying. They thought I was forcing my way out of the hospital. And they told me, we don't want you to come home. I'm like, are you serious? I'm like, no. My, mo my mother calls me on the phone and says, ask them to stay for two more days. So I said, what do you think this is, a hotel? I said, I'm in a hospital. So yeah, they were really, th that was the toughest thing for me, more than anything else. Well, uh, it seems like you're doing better. Uh, and now obviously you wrote the story on crossing broad and I know that was very well received and yeah. around. And so if you haven't had an opportunity to read that, I, I highly suggest that you do so. Thanks, Bob. So that is a, a hell of a segue into uh, a much uh, less important topic, but that happens to be what our show's about. So we're going to talk about it. Uh, and that is the uh, Phillies who uh, began uh, with pitchers and catchers today down in Clearwater and, uh, kind of an interesting dynamic for this 2021 Phillies team, you know, after a, another disappointing season a year ago uh, that ended with uh, another swing and miss at the postseason. I don't think that optimism was very high regarding this team's future. Uh, certainly when they went into October and they, they fire Matt Klintak, you know, the good vibes from that move or the, the, the good vibes that should have been created from going in a different direction were sort of overshadowed by what I would call uh, you know, concerning, uh, I would say, comments from John Middleton and Andy McPhail about what the Phillies might be able to do uh, this offseason to improve the roster. Uh, fast forward four months, you know, you have a new baseball uh, or operations, uh, president of baseball operations and Dave Dombrowski. You have a team that has, has retained key players in JT Real Muto and D.D. Gregorius and has made some some low buys that are intriguing to, to maybe fortify the, the middle and back of this roster. Um, you know, and, and Anthony, I got to tell you, as the Phillies open up here, I, I don't have them winning the NL East and I don't have them going to the World Series, but I envision that this is going to be a pretty competitive team, one that, that should give some real reason for optimism to this fan base. Yeah, I mean, it's a very tough division, Bob. Um, I mean, the Mets are vastly improved. They're going to be really good. The Braves are the Braves. The Nationals are still a decent team. And we saw that the Marlins are plucky last year. Right? So it's going to be a good division. Um, I, I think what the difference is between what Dombrowski and GM Sam Fulton, you got to give him credit too, what, what they've done here um, that Clentac could not do um, is rather than going shopping on the trash heap and hoping for a reclamation project. They looked at the next level up 
and said, look, we're going to buy low on a lot of these guys, but at least they have a pretty good recent track record. And so when you look at names like today, like, you know, we're recording on the 17th of February today, they signed Tony Watson to a minor league deal. Tony Watson's got a career whip uh, of under 1.1. I mean, he's been a really good reliever for a long time. He was decent last year. Um, Brandon Kinsler, you know, guys like that. I mean, these are players who've, who've had recent success that they've brought in and, and they're saying, we're going to take a shot with these guys. Automatically, that puts you ahead of the, the, the slop that was brought in last year by Klentak and just shows that that's, that's where Matt was deficient. He couldn't take it to that. He, he, he only saw things maybe, Bob, and you would know better being around the team, but it's almost like he saw things in extremes. He could recognize the really good talent, and we give him credit for you know going after big-name players and bringing them in and stuff like that, but he had a hard time finding that middle-level talent that you really need for a team to be good. And look, we'll wait and see, but I, I think that when you look at the, the, the bullpen, the bench, and the back end of the rotation, what Dombrowski did is head and shoulders above what Matt Klintak did. Yeah, I agree. It's something that we've talked about on this show for, for years now, uh, really, is the lack of creativity, the, the inability to identify uh, lower to mid-level type players and, and maybe get a little bit more value out of those players than, than what you are paying for. And, you know, that's not to say that, you know, handing Matt Moore $3 million guaranteed or, ha- uh, you know, ha- uh, handing Chase Anderson $4 million guaranteed is, is a steal. But like you said, it's, it's not going dumpster diving. It's, it's trying to identify guys that had a little bit of a down year, perhaps a, a season ago in a shortened season, maybe recognize that there's some value there. I look at a guy like Chase Anderson, who was a disaster with Toronto when you look at the stat line, but really, if you take a closer look, a lot of that damage was done in a very, very small sample, and it kind of inflates the rest of his numbers. You look at what Chase Anderson did over a three- or four-year sample prior to that with the Brewers, and you go, hey, you know what? We have a, a viable fourth, fifth starter here, potentially. And what you now do is y- you have a guy like Moore, you have a guy like Anderson, you have Spencer Howard in the mix, and you create a legitimate competition in the back end of that rotation – And to be honest with you, I I think that they're leaps and bounds ahead of where they were when they were flying north over the last four or five years with guys like Nick Pavetta, guys like Vince Velasquez, and and not as an option, but as the guy. You know, like all along, those guys were going to be the fourth and fifth starters, even if they told you it was an open competition. Now, I think that there's a little bit more of a track record here. There's a little bit more um, optionality to, to borrow a Sixers term. Um, And, you know, I really think that this year, too, especially, and this is something that Joe Girardi talked about when he met with reporters today, this is going to be a season. And and I listen, I know starting pitching depth is always important. You know, it's almost like stating the obvious to say that. But this season, more than any other season, as starters get stretched back out into a full schedule coming off of a 60-game sprint, I think having that depth and having those options are going to be really, really important. So rather than going out and signing a guy like James Paxson for eight and a half million dollars, which by the way, I think is actually a pretty good deal for the Mariners. Phillies took a little bit of a different approach and tried to diversify the way that they were spending. And I don't hate it. You know, I I don't hate it. I'm not telling you that this is a great starting rotation. I certainly have concerns about the, the number four and five slots in it. But I I do think that they've set themselves up to give themselves some options. And again, something that I don't feel overly, overly concerned about coming into this season. Yeah, I I agree with you on that. And I'll tell you, um, and this is going to be a little bit out of the blue, but I I think that there was another really under the radar 
signing this week that is going to help that pitching staff, I think, immensely. And that was the signing of catcher Jeff Mathis. Now, let me talk about Jeff Mathis just for a second. This guy's been extraordinaire. Yeah, well, he's been in the league for 16 years. Can't hit worth a lick. One of the worst. I think he's the second worst uh, hitting batter in the history of baseball with with the amount of time he's played or some some kind of I forget what the stat is, but something ridiculous. But he's a really good defensive catcher. But more so than anything else, is he is everywhere he's been has been considered like awesome with pitchers. And what's under the radar about this is that the Phillies are going to have a taxi squad this year because of COVID. That taxi squad, if he ends up being the third catcher and ends up on that taxi squad, the taxi squad catcher is allowed to travel with the team and warm up pitchers in the bullpen, right? So now here he's almost becoming like a de facto, you know, second coach out there, second bullpen coach. I think that there's something to that, Bob. I think that, that there, I think that there's a little bit of savviness in that signing to help this rotation, to help this bullpen, and to really get the pitching staff going in the right direction. I, I want to support what you just said and let everybody know that last year uh, Jeff Mathis posted a 575 OPS, and that's actually 22 points higher than his career OPS. So that's a pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, you can't the- hit worth a lick. Yeah, so, yeah, that'll be an interesting uh, storyline to see how that plays out in spring, see if he sticks around. I, I would imagine for the purposes or the reasons that you just spoke about, there's a pretty good likelihood that that might happen. You know, I, I look at this, I, I'm a big fan of the Kinsler deal. I think that that is a, a you know minor league deal that's going to pay off. I expect him to be a part of this bullpen when they when they come north. Again, not a guy that is has an overly powerful arm, not a guy that's going to blow you away in terms of pure stuff, but someone that has some experience and some success pitching late in games. And uh, he was good with the Marlins last year, and we'll see if that translates and certainly gives the Phillies another option. One thing I really like that they did from a strategic or a philosophical standpoint, and this is something that the team has talked about a few times in their uh, sit-downs with the media. Joe Girardi's talked about it. Dave Dombrowski's talked about it. It's that they've actually added some power uh, in the bullpen. You know, some guys that can generate swings and misses, guys that can blow by a fast or blow a fastball by you. Uh, it's just something that they have not had uh, in recent seasons. JT Realmuto talked a little bit about this uh, when he resigned, met with reporters. He said, you know, we got hit hard at times last year. Bullpen struggled at times last year, but we also ran into a lot of bad luck. We got dinked and dunked to death at times as well with a lot of soft contact. And that's a product of that, that bullpen's inability to generate swings and misses. So we'll see what happens with guys like Sam Coonrod, obviously Archie Bradley, uh, Jose Alvarado, guys that have uh, some, some ability to generate swings and misses on a consistent basis. Again, Aside from Archie Bradley, I don't know that any of these guys are people that you should pencil in for sub two five ERAs and you know 10, 10 strikeouts per nine innings. But again, viable options, guys that I believe are going to give you more than what you got last year. And I'm not just saying that because it was such a bad bullpen. I mean, I think that we're going to have uh, at least a a major league, you know, average major league quality bullpen out there this year. And the thing of it is, Bob, if you look at it. And I forget who did the story. You might know off the top of your head, um, because when the story came out, I was still, uh, you know, on some drugs. So <laughs> I just remember reading it um, that w- if the Phillies would have had a league average bullpen last year, 
with the offense that they put together and the starting pitching results that they had. Not only would they have been a playoff team, but they would have been a really competitive playoff team. Yeah, I know Jason Stark uh, was talking about this a little bit. Is that who it was, Jason? He dug up some numbers just talking about, like, you know, we knew that this was a historically bad bullpen and all of that. But, you know, when you actually map it out, I think that they had something like an astronomical lead, like uh, 39 times that they didn't hold on to or, you know, at some point whether or not they came back to win the game, which is, you know, obviously absurd. Um, that being said, you know, one thing that, that happened today, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about how we feel about where this team's at. You know, I, I don't want to give official predictions or anything like that. We have plenty of time to, to do that in the coming days and coming weeks, but talk a little bit about where this team's at right now. Uh, maybe kind of what we expect, uh, you know, in a general sense, and we could talk a little bit about uh, Odubel Herrera as well, because that's kind of the dominant storyline that's hovering over this team uh, as they kind of kick off spring training here. But before we uh, get to that, one thing that happened today, both Aaron Nola and uh, Joe Girardi uh, met with uh, reporters. And I got to be honest with you, more important than the Odubel Herrera storyline was something that I thought Joe Girardi said concerning the starting rotation. We talked a little bit about how the four and five spots might shake out with some of the veterans that they went out and acquired this year. That obviously leaves out Spencer Howard, who a year ago, uh, many people thought might be, you know, slotting in as this team's number two, at worst, number three starter, top pitching prospect struggled in a very small limited sample size last season he had dealt with a variety of small nagging injury issues uh i believe he had a 5.92 era over six starts something to that effect i gotta be honest with you i did not get the sense that spencer howard is a front runner to be in this team's starting rotation when they come north next month um you know, I'm not writing him off. I'm not, I'm not saying that he won't factor in, especially because you're going to need depth. And I'm sure that the Phillies are still high on him in some regard. But I, I truly did not get the sense today listening to Joe Girardi that, that he is in the lead for one of those two spots. Yeah, I think he's going to have to win it, uh, win a spot uh, in spring training. Um, and even if he pitches well but doesn't dominate in spring, that might not be enough. And the Phillies might be thinking of it in the sense that you know what? Let him go to AAA. Let him get a handful of starts there. Just kind of get into his rhythm, into the season a little bit. And then, you know, sometime in, in May, maybe we bring him back and, and make him part of the rotation at that point. I don't have a problem with that. Um, if you're managing his innings because he only threw so many innings last year, you know, and you don't want him to burn out his arm, um, trying to ramp it up too much. I get it, and I think that it's it's better to try and manage it in the minors than try and manage it at the major league level. Um, and then and then you give him a chance, you know, when it matters, and see if it and see if it can kind of you know roll downhill in a, in a positive way uh, as you approach the second half of the season and you're making a push for the playoffs. So I, I don't I don't have a problem with it. Um, but I think you're right. I think your read is you're reading the tea leaves properly that he's he's certainly not the front runner. There's a couple things that I, I think with Spencer Howard at this point. Number one, you got to keep in mind, he's never pitched a triple A. He went from double A to the major leagues. And, you know, uh, uh, there were a few things that I feel happened to him last year. Number one was that I do believe that he wasn't quite physically right or that 
perhaps his arm wasn't where he wanted it to be. And he was trying to overcompensate for that, but the velocity was a little bit down. He didn't seem to have this poise and confidence that we had heard about. The command of his pitches wasn't consistently there. He wasn't crisp, you know, and I think there were a variety of reasons for that. But I, one of the things that became very apparent to me was that he seemed a little bit, I don't know, stunned that that his stuff wasn't playing the way it had played in the minor leagues and I guess that's to be expected but I think he was put into a tough situation last year you know the stops and starts uh leading up to the season kind of was turned to as a hey we need you you know it's not a situation where I just make a couple starts like they were really counting on him to give them quality innings it was just a bad spot in a lot of ways and I don't want to totally chalk up a, a subpar season to COVID and the dynamics of the season a year ago. But I think there were a lot of contextual things working against Spencer Howard. You fast forward to this year, though, and certainly the Phillies could use somebody. They could use the idea of Spencer Howard, what he's supposed to be in this rotation. A younger arm with considerable upside, you know, somebody that you can really feel good about moving forward over the next five plus years. That being said, the Phillies, I think, given the offseason that they've had and the approach that they've taken, aren't really in the, hey, let's experiment and see what happens kind of mode right now. And I think that this is a team that knows that they're going to be in an ultra competitive division. It's a team that has playoff aspirations. Again, you don't spend what they've spent. You don't take the course of action that they took this offseason if you're not trying to make the playoffs. I just don't think that this is a team that says, hey, we can give Spencer Howard five, six, seven starts just because he's our number one guy and let them kind of learn on the fly and have those growing pains. Like you said, I think they would be just as content to let him go down to AAA, work on things, gain the confidence, and feel really good about him stepping on a major league mound for the first time, whether that happens in May, June, July, or whenever the case may be. He's going to pitch in the major leagues at some point this season, as long as he stays healthy. But when I look at this, I just don't believe that the Phillies are willing to say, yeah, let's do the growing pains thing with Spencer Howard. They know that every single one of these starts matter. Yeah, I agree with you, Bob. And, and you know, this is not abnormal. I mean, how many top pitching prospects, when they first come into the league, you know, struggle a little bit? And, you know, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking about Major League Baseball last year, and I look at Detroit, where we've heard for, you know, the last few years about Casey Mize, and how dominant he was in the minor. And he was, like, ridiculously dominant in the minors. And then he came up and has, <clears throat> has an ERA over seven. You know, struggled in his um, seven starts, I guess he had, or whatever he had, for the Tigers. You know, he, this is a guy who's a top ten prospect in all of Major League Baseball. And he struggled, too. So, I mean, these things happen with young pitchers. Last year was a really unprecedented season, you know, as far as how, how they prepared and not having games to pitch in the minors. And, you know, it was crazy. So you, you got to kind of expect a little bit, a little bit of a setback for pitchers, I think, um, going into this season. So I think being more careful with Howard is probably the right approach to take with him with, with all that considered, you know, I, I want to just set this up for people. You know, he was asked, I believe by Matt Gelb today, Joe Girardi was asked, you know, where are we at with Spencer Howard? We know that he had some injury issues. Are you going to be a little bit more cautious with him? And Joe kind of was like, well, you know, no, because he's in a competition and we need to see him and he needs to compete for this, this spot in the rotation. But 
you know, when we get into games, we might be uh, on a little bit of a different schedule. It's like the Phillies just kind of, I feel like, aren't totally comfortable with where he's at right now and, and what happened a year ago. And so I think Joe Girardi, in so many words, said he's got to compete, but we may not ride him the way that we otherwise would want to. And that right there, to me, indicates that he enters this race at a disadvantage. Now, maybe he goes out and just shoves. Maybe he goes out and he's dominant and he really just kind of ties the Phillies hands and they have to. And I'm sure that they would love to in a perfect world, have him in this rotation. You know, you want Spencer Howard to go out and out pitch Chase Anderson and Matt Moore, you know, it's almost in a way it would be disappointing if those guys all sort of look the same, but I just get the sense that they sort of know coming into this, that the likely outcome is that he's going to start in triple a. Could, could it be also Bob and not that, not that he's, you know, going to start the year on the roster, <clears throat> but could it also be that Joe's answer today is that he doesn't want to tip off just yet that the Phillies are are thinking about a six man rotation? Yeah, um, and Aaron Nola was asked about this too, about the idea of of going every, you know, every five days, having five days of rest as, as opposed to four, and he kind of shooed that away and said, you know, I want the ball, uh, you know, every fifth day, I, I want to make as, as many starts as I can. I want to pitch as many innings as I can. You know, it's an interesting question. I think it's something that the Phillies uh, right now, if, if everything works as designed, they, they should have some options here. They have as, as many as eight different starting pitchers right now that, that could conceivably fill in as a, a number five starter, you know, or they have four different starters who could slot in as a number five. They have eight, eight, nine major league, quasi-major league caliber starting pitchers on this on this roster going in. So is it in play? Maybe. Is that a way to maybe alleviate some of the transition going from the 60-game schedule back to 162? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think some teams will probably go this way or, you know, go this route. I, I don't know if that's something the Phillies are going to do, but really I think it would be foolish to, at, at this point in the, the calendar, you know, on February 17th, sit here and say to yourself, we're committed to doing this one thing. I think you have to leave all possibilities open this early on. You know, I would hope by the first or second week of March it becomes a little bit more evident of what their plan's going to be. But right now, I think you kind of let the chips fall where they may. One other thing I'll say, you know, we have kind of glossed over the idea of Vince Velasquez here. Uh, I Who? do not believe, <laughs> yeah. Can you believe in, in 2021 that you and I are having a show right now and we are talking about the possibility the remote possibility in my opinion of Vince Velasquez being in this starting rotation it's baffling to me that this guy is back <laughs> no absolutely I, I you know I, I can't believe it took this long uh, because he's been such a whipping boy for us in the three years that we've been doing this podcast um, I, I don't know where he fits Bob I don't see it. I actually think that uh, not that they're going to get some awesome return for him, but I could see a scenario where he may not be on this team. You know, I know they, they went. Then why resign him? Well, you know, I think if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not totally mistaken, I believe that that happened before Dave Dombrowski. That happened before day after Dave Dombrowski came in. We'll have to check that. Usually I'm pretty I good. Think, I think you're right. I think it was before. I'm not entirely positive, but my thought here is that you don't go out and do both Matt Moore and Chase Anderson and Yvonne Nova. And I, I just don't feel like you do those signings if you think that Vince Velasquez is going to be your fifth starter. 
I just don't see it. And I don't believe that he's a reliever. I've been saying this for two or three years. I know that everybody's like, well, he's got a good arm. He's got a live arm. He can be a two pitch guy, go out and pitch the sixth, seventh, eighth inning. If he just commits to it, they don't jerk him back and forth. Now in all fairness to Vince Velasquez, they have jerked him back and forth. They've never left him in the bullpen for a prolonged period of time to say, you're going to prepare an entire off season to do this. It's going to be your role. You're going to just have to own it and deal with it. It's always been, well, you're a starter. Well, we'll send you to the bullpen. Well, wait, you're starting again. So he's never really had a consistently fair shake down there. But I got to be honest with you. He can't locate. And when you get into high leverage situations, I don't care if you can throw the ball 96 miles an hour. He can't locate. And so to me, he is not a reliever. He's not a major league pitcher. Not on, not on a contending team. There's a spot for Vince Velasquez in Major League Baseball. He can go out there and look good on occasion. There's some team that's going to win 72 games this year that would do well with Vince Velasquez. He'd be a nice piece. But I don't see it on a team that is, is competing to be a playoff team and wants to say we're all in. It just doesn't add up. And I've been saying this for two years now. Yeah, you know what I'm, I'm thinking about? I didn't even look it up, but I'm, I'm thinking that those signings occurred in the brief tenure of Ned Rice as the interim general manager, if I'm not mistaken. That's when I think all those players were re-signed. Yeah, because you do you do the deals. You he So he avoided arbitration in, in mid-January. So Dave Dombrowski's in at that point, but I believe you have to extend – Am I wrong? Don't you have to extend the qualifying offer here and, and put that into effect, correct? So if I'm not mistaken, that decision was made, I believe, prior. Um, we can Next time you start talking, I'll look that up to make sure that I clarify that so that we're factually correct. But, uh, I, you know, I just don't – I don't believe that he's destined to be, a, you know, a part of this rotation. And I kind of believe that his, his presence in the bullpen is a long shot at this point as well. I, I agree with you. I just, I didn't understand bringing him back at all. And I, I don't know how much of a chance he's even going to be given, Bob. Like, you know, you know, when pitchers start in spring training, the first couple of starts are like, what, two innings, right? Th maybe three. So if Vince gets you through two or three starts at two to three innings, by that point, you kind of have an idea of who's ahead of who. All and right, I feel, I feel better about about myself so he was uh extended a contract uh which which set into motion this process and they headed to arbitration on december 2nd that was the the deadline and dave dombrowski joined the phillies on december 11th so there you go mm -hmm. and i would imagine that dave dombrowski and some of his <laughs> some of his thinking he came in and said nope you know i just <laughs> that's the way i look at it and that's you know, uh, so I'm, I'm glad we had that right. I wanted to make sure that we had that. that yeah. So, but you know, to finish what I'm saying, by that point, he gives you, th you know, three spring starts. Even if he's okay, like at that point, are you going to sit there and go, well, you know, let's keep giving him, let's keep trotting him out there. Let's keep putting, you know, it's, he's in the competition. Or do you sit there and go, he's no different than any other guy that we have competing for this thing? You know, and he doesn't really fit anywhere else. And look, to, and look to move on. I mean, I I think that's I think that's where they got to go. I mean, <laughs> he's not going to throw a lot of innings, five per start at most, usually four. <laughs> I he's never had a good enough stretch to sit there and go, well, let's let's keep riding this. Um, I, he's a I, Cowboys I, fan. 
I don't know. I just don't know where it, where it works. You know, the other consideration in all of this too, in, in, in addition to the fact that I just don't think he's, a, or neither of us believe that he's a very good pitcher, it's also that he costs $4 million, you know? And this is a team that is, is creeping up against it. And I don't know if there's a team out there that wants to take Vince Velasquez on for a four fill, uh, full $4 million, but I do also believe it's a consideration at this point that if the Phillies even – paid half of that salary that's two million valuable dollars right now as their their flexibility trending towards the luxury tax is, is starting to you know press up against it a little bit it's just not a good allocation of money and there's just no other way around it in addition to the fact that he's not very good yeah i mean there are other things that this phillies team needs and maybe this would be a good transition into the Herrera conversation, but center field is by far the biggest question mark, I think, going into the season, just because you have a bunch of guys out there who are mediocre at best, probably not even mediocre at worst, um, and they're competing for an, a, basically an everyday job, and you heard Girardi say it the other day. He's like, you know, I, I don't mind doing a platoon, but our real hope is, is that one of these guys comes in and takes the job and doesn't give it up. And the fact of the matter is, when you hear a coach say that, that basically means they don't have anybody to take the job. It's like the old saying in football, if you have two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks. Right. I think the Eagles are proving that as we speak. At <laughs> um, you know, that being said, let me give you a quick little, I'm just going to give you a quick hit on Roman Quinn, Adam Hazley, and Scott Kingery. You tell me where I'm wrong here. Okay. I'm just going to give you a, a blend of my own assessment. What I read into from Joe Girardi, the organization, how the coaching staff feels and kind of just where these guys are at right now. So I'll start with Scott Kingery comes in last year, had COVID set him back. Uh, I don't believe that he was ever quite right. I think that he tried to overcompensate for the fact that he did not physically feel correct. And I think that he created more injury concerns for himself. So I'm willing to write off a fraction of his struggles last year based on his, on, on the fact that he came to camp late. He was a little bit behind. I don't think his breathing was right when he first got there. He talked about that. You know, he ended up tweaking the back, tweaking the shoulder. There was a lot of different things working against him last year. I can, I, I can uh, sympathize with Scott. And I'm sure you can, you know, <laughs> you know, he, he said it. He's like, I just didn't feel right. Even though I was back, I was cleared and I'm, I'm here, but you know, he, he admitted a couple of weeks later when he was really struggling that he was going through it. And I'm willing to write that off a little bit. Here's my take on Scott Kingery. And I'm just going to be honest because I like the guy and the interactions that we had had, you know, going back two years now, because we didn't really, you know, get up close and personal with these guys last year. I got to say, he doesn't strike me as somebody that takes the game as seriously as he should. Uh, I think that Scott Kingery has to grow up a little bit. And I believe that his struggles a year ago um, were, they, they should have been a wake up call. And I think that if he is going to have that rebound, if he's going to finally put it together, this is the year. Like, this is going to be it for Scott Kingery. And I think that the Phillies feel and again this is my projection I think the Phillies feel similar to how I feel and I believe that's why he doesn't have and he's not coming down to, to camp right now with his name in the in the starting lineup I, I think that the Phillies have sort of put Scott King real notice you're not good enough 
for us to pencil you in. You were a big part of this team's plans. You were supposed to be a centerpiece of this team going into the next two, three years as he starts to ride through this contract. And the fact that right now he's just kind of a, he's a floating part. I think says a lot about where the Phillies are at with Scott Kingery. It's time for him to do it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just feel like his star fell fast and maybe too fast. Um, and, and it, you know, like you said, I mean, there were reasons for last year um, that doesn't excuse everything, like you said. But I mean, two years ago, he had a pretty solid season for them. Right. I mean, he struggled at the, in September, but you know, you take that last month out of the, out of the equation, he was one of their better players. And, you know, so how do you go from that to a shortened season where you had COVID and then suddenly you're not, you're not, you know, a part of the plan anymore. It just seems that it just seems too quick of a fall. Now I think that the team could be trying to send a message to him that, yeah, we're starting Gene Segura at second base. Yeah, you're competing for center field. And that could be the what you're saying, hey, you need to take it a little bit more seriously. You're but I think, that, I think that they feel that he still has the talent to be an everyday player. They just are playing that little bit of a mind game with him. Yeah, because Gene Segura is a, a, a fine player, but it's not like he should be entrenched at second. Right. Scott Kingery has no shot to play there. I mean, right. it says a lot. I think that there's two things that can be true to borrow a, a phrase of Kevin Kincaid's that he always likes to, to use. I think that they may not be done with him and they may not have moved on from him, but I do think that this organization wants to kind of kick him in the ass a little yeah. bit. Say, Yo, it's, it's time, my man, you know, it's time to get it going here. So that's the way I view Scott Kingery at this point. And that being said, I still think based on their options that there's a very good chance that he might play the bulk of center field because Joe Girardi last year, like myself, was seduced, I think, by Roman Quinn. You know, you see the tools, you see the pop, you see the range, the speed, the, the things that he can do to wreak havoc and create havoc on the base paths. There's a good player in there with some talent, some, some God-given talent. And he's a good dude, too, Roman Quinn. Awesome guy. I know everybody talks about the injuries, but the fact of the matter is when he was on the field last year, he was very inconsistent. He showed flashes where he would make a play and you go, wow, awesome. And then he would do something the next night where you're like, what the hell is that? And you know, the, the volatility and the ups and downs of Roman Quinn, I think started to sour on Joe Girardi a little bit. And I think that now he was a guy that, that the Phillies wanted to have take that job and run with it. And he didn't do it in his, his limited shot. And then that being said, that brings me to Adam Hazley, who frankly is, He's like a fourth or fifth outfielder to me, but I don't see a guy that is good enough to play every day. And I know they didn't give him opportunities against lefties very often last year. I know that he may not have really gotten the fair shake that some fans wanted to see him get. Good guy, smart player. I just don't see it. Yeah, he's got a ceiling. He just has a limited ceiling and it doesn't yeah. mean he's a bad player. doesn't mean he's, he's not a useful part on a, on a good team, but I don't see an everyday center fielder. And when I look at this, if you ask me to handicap, you know, game one, like they're going to platoon in some way. Like there's the Phillies center fielder is not going to play 145 games in center field this year. I think that we can all agree on that, but that first week, I got to imagine that the majority of starts are going to go to Scott Kingery. And 
I don't feel great about that. And and so when I look at this lineup, and again, like you go across baseball, lineups are going to have holes in them, right? Like you're not going to be rock solid one through eight. Bottom line is when you look at this lineup, top to bottom, we're talking about a lineup that was within the top seven and run scored OPS on base percentage last year. It's a good lineup. You know, it's a playoff caliber lineup, I think. Yeah. Assuming that everything kind of stays the same and you get another year of Alec Boehm, you know, Alec Boehm in his first full season, theoretically should take a step forward. Curious to see what Reese Hoskins does too, right? Are we going to get Reese Hoskins who's hitting 180, but is on base percentage is 330 guy that hit one home run in 23 games to start. The I, I think you're going to get the, the, the Reese Hoskins you had towards the end of the year. You're going to get that guy because if you get yeah. that guy and you get year two of Alec Boehm who makes some type of jump, this is a good offense. So mm-hmm. I'm not overly, and to bring it back to my point, I'm not like losing sleep over center field, but it's less than an ideal situation for sure. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think Kingry probably gets the most of the start. Here's the question though, Bob. Are all three of those guys on the roster? To start the I season? don't know. You know, it's a great question. I mean, I guess I could see a scenario in which one of those guys is flipped. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a team out there that values Roman Quinn's tools. Maybe there's a, a team out there that, that needs a, a consistent, steady, younger performer who doesn't make a lot of money like Adam Hazley. You know, maybe there's a need for that and the Phillies can get back a useful part. I don't know what that part is right now, but maybe that opportunity presents itself. You know, it's, it's entirely possible. Talk today a little bit about the idea that Brad Miller, where is he going to get his at-bats from? You know, Joe Girardi was kind of approached with the idea of, could he possibly play left field at times when Andrew McCutcheon needs to get off his feet? And, you know, Joe Girardi said, that's one thing that we're definitely going to take a long look at. So, you know, there's a lot of different moving parts out there with the outfield. Um, it'll be interested to, it'll be interesting to see how that, that plays out. And so then that brings us to, and this is a hell of a way to set this up the one wild card in this whole situation, which is Odubel Herrera. And I guess let's talk about this from a moral standpoint. Let's have that conversation. And then let's talk about the baseball standpoint. And then we'll kind of make a final conclusion on how we think this is going to play out. I know for me personally, uh, I was on 97.3 with Mike Gill uh, on Tuesday afternoon. And he asked me how I felt about this. And this is kind of how I'm going to approach the Odubel Herrera situation. If you are rooting against Odubel Herrera and think that he is a terrible person and doesn't deserve a second chance, you are entirely entitled to that opinion. I won't argue with you. If you're somebody that believes that athletes and people uh, in some combination deserve and, and often get second chances in life, and this is a guy that if he's doing all of the right things to rehab his, his you know, anger issues and the way that he treated uh, his girlfriend and, and working out all of his mental and personal uh, demons, and, and he deserves a second chance, I'm not going to argue with you. Like you're entitled to feel however you want to feel about Odubel Herrera. I will tell you that based on what you see around the world of sports, I'm not sure why he doesn't get a second chance when everyone, not everyone. I mean, there's like the Ray Rice's of the world who weren't afforded opportunities in the league after his incidents, but we see this a lot. If those guys are afforded second chances, what's different about Odubel Herrera? And that's sort of what I keep coming back to. That being said, I would prefer 
the roster composition to not feature a guy that that put his hands on his girlfriend, right? Like you don't yeah. you don't root for that. You don't feel good about that. But it's so it's like this idea of like what's the the ideal situation versus what's the reality of it. Well, here's 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 the interesting dynamic that I think that this city has. So, and I know it's 2021 and we're a lot less lenient in society today. We live in, in a world of cancel culture, right? You did, you did something wrong 30 years ago, you're dead. That's it. You're out. Forget it. Um, so we live in that society now. But in this city, within the last 12 years, right? Thir- 12 and a half. We had Brett Myers, friend of the program, okay? Who punched his wife on Boylston Street in Boston in 2006, started the next game in Boston. Two years later, was cheered by a complete sellout crowd when he had that at bat against CC Sabathia in the playoffs. Philadelphia fans forgave him. And he didn't really do the big apology thing that Odubel Herrera did. So, you know, there's that. And then you have Mike Vick. Different scenario. He abused dogs. But a lot of people <laughs> put, put dogs on pedestals ahead of humans, right? I mean, it's, it's crazy sometimes. But he comes in here. He's successful right away. And fans love him. Turns out he's actually a pretty good dude. Not everyone, you know, describe right. right? Like yeah, not yeah. everyone. And I'm sure that there were some Phillies fans when Brett Myers did what he did that right. I don't feel good about this as they were cheering the team on, you know? So yeah. And I know that you know that, and I know that that's, I, it should be self-evident, but I feel like we ought to just clarify. No, no, sure. But point is what I'm saying is, is we've given guys that second chance in the past. Um, which to me means Odubel Herrera probably deserves that second chance. Only because, and, and only because I'm appalled by what he did. But they've, his girlfriend, who's now his wife, <clears throat> didn't want to press charges. They've worked it out. They're still together. He's apologized. He's gone through the programs. He's made monetary donations. He's done all the right things since. So if you want to rehabilitate people who make serious mistakes in life, then he's doing everything that you would want to see him do, right? So a guy like that, I'm willing to give a second chance to. It's not an automatic. I'm not sitting here saying, oh, well, he was a good player before, throw him back in. No, I think what the Phillies are doing, are they're doing it the right way. He's got to start at the bottom rung. He's in that mini camp and he's got to work his way through that to earn a spot at the big, the big camp. And then maybe if he's there, he's got to earn a spot again to go a little bit further to eventually make the roster. I I don't see it. I don't see him going through that whole path, but what I do see Bob, and I think this is where he gets his second chance is that he keeps his head down. He plays decent enough baseball that the Phillies can let him go somewhere else 
and resume his career, which is probably the best thing for all parties involved. I, I hear you on that. I, I look at this, and, and so Joe Girardi and Aaron Nola both actually were asked about Odubel Herrera today, and Joe Girardi just said, listen, the way that the collective bargaining agreement is structured, it is there to provide people with second chances, and he has an opportunity to prove that he deserves and is worthy of a second chance, and he also has an opportunity to compete for a job here. And I will say this, I don't, I, I didn't take that as like a ringing endorsement of, and I know a lot of people like saw the comments and they said, oh, here we go. Here are the Phillies laying the groundwork for the eventual return of Odubel Herrera. I didn't view it like that. I think Joe Girardi was being honest, like the way that the Players Association, Major League Baseball negotiated this, he can't be punished further. There's, there's no further punishment to dole out here. Um, and so I think the Phillies are like kind of just in this Let's give him an opportunity to come down here. Let's just see what he does. And frankly, if it's not very good, we can just sort of move on because the fact of the matter is the guy had a sub 300 on base percentage nearly two years ago when he last played. You know, you said it. Like, I think that this is going to be a non-story by the time April rolls around because I don't think he's going to be good enough to actually make this team. That's my guess. Like Aaron Nola said, you know, how would the, it was asked, how would the locker room, how would the clubhouse respond to the return of Odubel Herrera? He says, you know, I know him and we think that he's done the right things to, to get things back on track. And, you know, we know that he can help us win games and I believe people deserve second chances. And it's just like uncomfortable. Like even as we're having this conversation, like in the back of my head, like I don't, because I haven't like just said like, get rid of him. Like he doesn't deserve to be here. Like, because I haven't taken that like ultra righteous standpoint, like I'm afraid that my opinion of this is going to be misconstrued is that I'm supportive of what he did, which I am most certainly not. It's repulsive. Right. But at the same time, like, again, like I talk about what is ideal versus what is the reality of the situation. And certainly in an ideal world, like you wouldn't be dealing with this and he wouldn't get a second shot. But the, the way that this is set up, this is what it is, you know? And I know a lot of Phillies fans are like just disgusted by this, but this is the way this works, you know? And, and that's kind of the way I look at it. Do you honestly think, let's just, and I don't think he's going to make the team, but just for, for kicks, let's say he's lights out in spring training, wins the job, and he's on the opening day roster. When fans are allowed back in the stands, do you think people actually stay away because Odubel Herrera is on the roster? Stay away? Like, don't come to the stadium? Like, yeah. To boycott the Phillies? No, yeah. I don't. I think that they'll be there. You'll get that couple couple isolated claps supporting the second chance and, and booze. And that's right. what you get. And if, like, let's just say he continued to play well over time, like, I know there are people that will never forgive him, right? I'm talking about Phillies fans in mass. Like, the majority of fans, if he like put together this season where he hit 300 and the Phillies were winning, he was in the middle of everything. Like as the season went on, like the booze would start to decrease. Like I'm not telling you people would go out and buy Odubel Herrera jerseys or anything like that, but right. there would be that initial, that initial reaction of, Oh my God, this is horrible. And I think it would like a lot of things do sort of just die down as the season goes. Uh, I'm with you though. I don't think he's going to make the team and I don't think the Phillies want to take on that headache, which is why I, I tweeted out yesterday. I said, morality aside, regardless of where you sit on this, on this Odubel Herrera deserves a second chance argument. He's going to not just have to have a, a solid spring. Like, I don't think he's going to, 
if, if you do like the, the blind the blind side-by-side numbers comparison of Scott Kingery versus Odubel Herrera and the numbers are similar. Like I think Odubel Herrera is going to have to like literally just go out there and take the job. Like, and, and I don't even know if he's going to get that much or that many opportunities in spring training to even prove it. But if he does, I mean, he's going to have to go out there and be awesome. I think for the Phillies to say, okay, let's deal with this public relations nightmare. Right. That's why I think ultimately he's going to end up somewhere else. Um, you know, there's still major league talent there. Like you, like you say about, like you say about Vince Velasquez, a 72 win team, you know, he'd be a nice piece for them. Well, Odubel Herrera could be a nice piece for a 72 win team too. Um, so I think that the Phillies would only help themselves by giving him some at bats early in the spring, let him play a few games you know, and see what he does. If he stinks, you cut him loose and say, now we're letting him go for just cause because he's not a good player. If he's good, maybe you can, even if you don't get a return uh, of any kind of value, but you can then move on from him that way and he yeah, can I, resume his career with another right, Where they make the trade and it's it's more of just the, the transactional, here's your fresh start, best right. luck to you. Where exactly. You I know some fans are like, well, yeah, play him. And if he has a great spring, you can get something good back for him. Like, that's not happening. The Phillies, no. the Phillies aren't trading Odubel Herrera for a meaningful return that's going to bolster their either their minor league ranking or, the, you know, right. solidify the major league roster. That's not going to happen. Uh, there's no you know, 30 at bats in Clearwater this spring isn't going to all of a sudden make some team jump out of their shoes to do that deal. Right. So that's, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, and so that's, that's my thing on Odubel Herrera, you know, and it's, uh, it's going to be one of the most prominent storylines of, of the spring, you know, regardless of whether or not the Phillies want it to be, uh, it's definitely going to be something that, that we will probably talk about again and something that we'll check back in on uh, as we move forward through February and, and into March. So to put a, a little bit of a bow on this, I want to, I want to keep things kind of tight here. In a sentence or so, I would say, what is your overall feeling about this team right now? You know, without putting a hard prediction on it, without putting a, a win total on it, how do you feel about the Phillies right now? Barring a rash of injuries that are too difficult to overcome, I think this is a good Phillies team that will be competing for a playoff spot in 2021. Will they get it? I don't know. The division is really good. Now, now that said, the National League Central stinks. The National League West, you got the Dodgers, of course, the Padres who made a big push. Um, The Giants are okay. Um, So, it, you know, you're going to have to beat out a couple teams to make the playoffs, but I think the Phillies are in the mix. I really do. And not like they've been in the mix the last three years. Like, I think this is the best version of the Phillies in the last four seasons that, you know, um, and, and I think that, like I said, barring injury, this team will be competitive enough to keep us talking and keep us excited about them into September. I'm with you and, and to kind of not to repeat you. I'll, I'll just add this. 
one X factor that I think is going to be particularly intriguing for this team, because we talk about the talent, we talk about how the roster is constructed, and where they're deficient, and where they're strong. But one thing I'm very interested to see is how does this team respond from a mental standpoint? Some of the guys that have been around now for three years, over the last three years, Aaron Nola, Bryce Harper, uh, JT Real Muto, I know came, uh, you know, and, he, and he's in the mix as well in this a team that, that didn't meet expectations and folded and experienced profound disappointment now over the last two, three years. Can they build on that? Can they learn something from that? Because I think that what we do when we evaluate, especially baseball, I think baseball more than any other sport, is we lock in and we look at the numbers and we look at the stat lines and the projections and we say they are what they are. But at the end of the day, these guys are human. And I do think that motivation matters. And I do think that having pride matters. And I think that responding to adversity and how you respond to it still matters in professional sports, still matters in baseball. And I'm curious to see if this team, after failing the way that it's failed the last few years, has learned anything, has internalized anything, has a little extra edge that it maybe didn't have in past years. And if that exists, and if they have that, I think that that could give this team a boost. And, and I just kind of get the sense that this is a more mature version of this team. It's a team that, that I think probably has learned something from its past experiences. I'm, I'm interested to see if this team has a little bit more of a, an edge or fire to it this year. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Bob. Um, it's funny when you said X factor. The funny thing is right before you said you want to put a bow on this, I was thinking if I had to ask you a question and said, if, if there's one player – on this roster who you think is the X factor between this team being a competitive playoff caliber team and being, you know, sub 500 team for the umpteenth time in a row, who, who would be that X factor? Uh, To be honest with you, I think it's Reese Hoskins. Um, That's, that's my guy in this situation. I mean, is Reese Hoskins going to, like we asked earlier in the show, is he a, is he an okay guy that has on base skills and, and that's kind of it? Or, or can he be a force in the middle of that lineup? And if he is, I think they're dangerous. The other guy for me is Aaron Nola. Okay. Uh, and, and I know that that sounds obvious. I know you have a different answer because I can see your face. Yeah. But the only reason why I say Aaron Nola is because Aaron Nola, as good as he's been, has wilted down the stretch. He's, he's also been part of those Phillies collapses and he's really struggled in September the last two years. And so if he's a guy that learned from those mistakes, kind of you know redirect the way that he performs in September it's a different outcome as a batter I agree with you on Hoskins my pitcher for x-factor Zach Eflin yeah if if, if Eflin can be what he was last year or maybe even slightly better over the course of an 162 game season I think that makes a difference between being a playoff team and a non-playoff team there's reasons for optimism there he kind of got the sense that he sort of figured out how to pitch up in the zone uh, how to generate swings and misses while also relying on the sinker and know that the curveball got better a year ago. ZRA has declined in each of the last three seasons, uh, striking out over 10 batters per nine last year. If he can stay there or take that step forward, like you suggested, um, all of a sudden the Phillies have a trio at the top of that rotation that you can almost live with the uncertainty of the four and five if you're mm-hmm. getting three really good starts for the rotation every time through. So uh, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Well, listen, this was fun. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not even going to try to predict when we're going to do this again, but uh, <laughs> it will be soon, I believe. So we'll just leave it at that. 
Um, I, if, if I will tell you this, uh, we will be here. We are doing this. This show did not die or anything like that. I know some people are always reaching out, like, what happened? When are you guys coming back and all that stuff? So we are, we're back in the mix here. Phillies are back. We're back. Everyone's healthy. Good stuff. So uh, I'm Bob Wankel for Anthony Sanfilippo. Uh, this is Crossed Up, and we will talk to you soon.